Get back to the office or you're fired. No, no, no. Whatever you feel like, that's, that's okay with us. What are we nuts? Are we crazy? Look, there's a right way and a wrong way to address this crazy situation that we find ourselves in. And what if I told you that there's a real impact to your organization, good or bad, depending upon how you respond to this, depending upon the right way or the wrong way that we respond to the situation that we're in. You see, I I'm convinced that we can create a workplace that's actually worth returning to, where you don't have to mandate people to go back. Your workforce actually wants to be there. How you design that space and the technology that you use in that space, well, that can make all the difference between success and failure. Hey, everybody, I'm Brad Souza. I'm CTO at AVI Systems. And on this episode of Eyes on Impact, I've invited one of my friends, Kay Sargent, to come and join me and unpack this topic of return to work, or better yet, creating a workplace worth returning to. In this episode, we're going to talk about how to design an office that is commute-worthy, something that creates human impact for the organizations that we serve. We'll talk about how the workplace is now an ecosystem, not just a place that you go. And we're going to finally, once and for all, answer the question, are there stupid questions? <laughs> we're going to do all of that. But before we do, I want to stop and say thank you to our friends at Logitech, who have made this episode of Eyes on Impact available to all of us at no charge. Logi's been a great partner of AVI's for a number of years, especially in the areas of unified collaboration, esports, and work from home. And we're grateful that they're partnering with us on this particular episode as well. So how about it? Let's unpack this topic of creating a workplace worth returning to. Are you ready? Okay, let's get after it. Okay, Sergeant. Man, I have been looking forward to hanging out with you. Thanks for giving us some of your time. I am happy to. Always good. I always learn something new when we have a conversation. It doesn't seem to matter whether that conversation's on stage or having lunch someplace or in this case, a video call. So thanks for giving us your time. I'm excited to have you with us. Now, here's an interesting thing. Um, I'm pretty certain that there's one or two people that are watching this podcast that may not know who the amazing case sergeant is. So how about you give us a little bit of background uh, to who you are? Let's get started with that. Yeah, so first of all, lucky them, right? So, um, but, <laughs> but my name is Kay Sargent. I'm the Global Director of Workplace at HOK. I'm a practicing interior designer. I've been practicing for 38 years, which means I've, I've seen a lot. I've been through a lot. And I have lots of uh, opinions about what is happening because in my role, we work with clients that have millions of square feet of space all over the world. And we lead the practice that uh, helps them provide the best solutions for multiple projects, multiple locations. And those clients don't like a lot of surprises. And the world has been full of surprises. So we try to do a little bit of thought leadership to help them understand not only what's happening right now, but what they're about to counter and to help them be future ready. Yeah, so I'm going to brag on Kay for just a little bit. So the uh, I, I've sat on uh, some boards with you. You've sat on many boards. You still sit on many boards. I sat on the board uh, with you for a VIXA, which is our trade association in the AVUC collaboration tech space. Uh, you co-founded the IFMA Workplace Evolutionaries Committee. You've testified before Congress on workplace trends in the pandemic. You were saying you just did that again recently the other day with yes. the Capitol Hill. I mean, you're kind of a big deal. Uh, you know, I, if, if I'm a big deal, then we need to find bigger deals in our industry. We need to, we need to expand our group. But I will just say, Brad, that I, I've been around and I do have a lot of opinions. And so I'm always happy to share that. And we're in a time where people are looking for people. Yeah that have sure. some direction. So always happy to share what our insights are. So let, let's give some context to this topic of workplace or workplace design so that people can kind of understand the, the box that you and I are standing in together. So uh, would you think of a customer that you've been working with, a, a, a client that you've been working with. Can you can you tell us about a project that you're particularly excited about and through through talking about that project, 
um, people will kind of get an understanding of what the context of our conversation is going to be today. Yeah, actually, we are working with multiple clients right now who are thinking about what is the future of work and not necessarily just the workplace, but work as, as a whole. How do we work? Where do we work? When do we work? Um, you know, the workforce. And then how should space be designed to do that? And I think the pandemic has opened up kind of a Pandora's box of things, many of which we were dealing with before the pandemic, and it kind of just uh, poured some fuel on that fire. But it's also made everybody kind of rethink what is the purpose of place and what do we need to do going forward? And so there are lots of challenges, but they're amazing opportunities. And I really think we're at an inflection point right now where our industry fundamentally knows that things need to shift. Yeah, yeah. We, we can either ignore that and have our industry's Kodak moment, or we can embrace <laughs> that and move forward. A Kodak moment, you mean by that is Kodak was at one point, you know, owned 98% market share. And today we yeah. kind of chuckle because they filed bankruptcy the same month that Facebook bought Instagram for a billion dollars, right? So. Yeah. And look, I mean, they invented digital photography, but they didn't know what right. to do with it because they didn't know how to monetize it. And so they put it on the shelf. And I think right now we understand that people want something different, but our industry hasn't figured out how to monetize it. And so we're, we're not responding or acting to that. And Brad, I'm so glad, by the way, that you clarified what a Kodak moment was, because <laughs> about five years ago, when we started talking about this, somebody in the audience said, do you mean an Instagram moment? Which, by the way, in our industry means it's such a cool thing that everybody's right. going to want to take their picture in front of it. And so it's a great thing. Like, what's the Instagram moment on this project or in the city or, you know, what do you do? But no, it's not that. It's a Kodak moment where you literally are holding the future in your hand. Yep. You don't know what to do with it. So you just put it on the shelf and say, yeah, we'll get to that later. And I think you're absolutely right. I tell people that this moment in our in our part of of this world, this moment in our industry is is the most powerful, most exciting moment in our history. And and there have been you know generations of evolution and technical development that have led up to this. Yeah. If we can only imagine how to capture it. And, and use it to really create impact for others. Well, I think there's been, uh, um, I think that there's been some fundamental shifts over the last 40 years and things have started to evolve, but they've happened so slowly that people haven't necessarily seen the cumulative effect. And I think if you stop and you really think about that, where we are today and where we are 40 years ago is significantly different in many, many regards. And I think we need to, to kind of own that right now. For sure. So let, let's talk about this for a moment, because you, you opened up the topic around the evolution of the office or the purpose of workplace. And, yeah. and you spend your time helping others imagine how to really make a, a amazing place for workers to come back to. I, I think the definition of workplace has changed. I think the purpose of the office has changed. Let's take a moment and just kind of unpack that together. Let's talk about the workplace because first, let's talk about that first because you you often talk about it in terms of an ecosystem. And I think that's an interesting thought that people don't just naturally get. Yeah. So first of all, we started saying literally seven years ago, and it's probably never, you know, it's truer now than it was then, but we are no longer designing environments. We're designing the experience. And the question is, where is that experience happening? And so with our clients, it's not just about, um, you know, what's happening at the workplace itself. We address a whole myriad of issues and we need to understand that work isn't necessarily just happening at one place. It's happening in this ecosystem. And this ecosystem has organically evolved over time. You know, Brad, you and I spend a ton of time in airports. I probably spend more time in an airport working than I do in an office working or, or in somebody else's office or, you know, in, in, in a variety of different settings. And so I think what we need to understand is that there is this, this emerging ecosystem that we officially can acknowledge now of home, 
third places, fourth places, and the office? And, and what is the right balance of all of those? And I, I don't think our industry is asking the right questions. And I think that's a problem right now. So, so what kind of questions do we find ourselves asking? And what should we be asking? Yeah, well, and look, I'm, I'm going to be an equal opportunity offender, so I apologize in advance. Bring it. The first one, right? There is such a thing as a stupid question, right? <laughs> I, I have five children. I get asked them every day. And by the way, now I ask them in return because now I'm the one asking the dumb questions. Like, how do I get to the Apple TV, you know, or whatever? Right. So, you know, there is such a thing as a dumb question. Um, I think a lot of companies ask a dumb question. And they ask people what they wanted in the beginning of this. And yeah. it's not that... It's not that we don't care what people want. That is, that's important, but it's not the only thing. Just because you can work from home doesn't necessarily mean that you should. And I think we need to think about um, what's right for the business, what's right for the individual, what's right for the coworkers. And one of our clients summed this up really, really well recently where they said they're basically going to their workforce and saying, okay. We need you to think about what do your customers and clients need and where yeah. do you need to be to do that, number one. Number two, what do your colleagues need from you, the people you supervise, the people you report to, the people that you're learning from or sharing from? What do they need and where do you need to be to do that? And then what do you personally want? And, and I think right now there's a lot of individuals that are waking up and thinking, I don't want to get dressed and put on pants and drive to an office today. I would just rather stay here. They're not thinking about those other factors, and they're not even thinking about what's right for their long-term professional career. And I think that's a challenge. We're thinking very self-centrically, and I think right now we're, we're very divided, in, not just in the workplace, but in a whole variety of ways. And that, that individualism, that lack of connected uh, you know, to the greater whole, I think is really causing some challenges. It's one of the reasons why what's happening in Europe is a little bit different. And what's happening in Asia is very different than what we're experiencing in the U.S. right now. Talk about that for a moment, because I'm not sure I'm seeing what you're seeing there. So talk about that. Yeah. So in Asia, um, you know, it, they basically are back at the office mostly. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. And in a lot of cases, it's because, uh, you know, you have you have people that are living in multi-generations and smaller living units, and you go to the office to actually have some space, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. uh, it's not like in America, where a lot of these cities were designed as central business districts with bigger houses outside in the suburbs, and people you know, have that space, and we have longer commutes. Um, and they also have different rail systems in different parts, uh, parts of the world. I think in Europe, it's much more about the collective mentality and the group mentality and I think here it's more of that individual entrepreneurial free spirit. What do I want? What do I, I think is important? And on one hand, that's fabulous because it's led to amazing in, in innovation. Uh, but on the other hand, it's not necessarily thinking about what's good for the collective. And right now, I think most companies are doing a fairly poor job of tying people to something bigger than themselves. And the messaging is, I want you in the office because I want to see you sitting at that desk so I know you're working, right? It's not about, you know what, Brad? When you're in the office, God, you inspire these younger people. And by the way, they help you with all that stuff. You know, but, right. you know it, it's like they don't make it a compelling reason and make us feel like we're part of something more important than just what I personally want. I love that. We're going to talk about that a little bit more. Before we do, though, I want to just kind of land this topic that the purpose of the office has changed, because I've heard you talk about this. Matter of fact, I've successfully stolen this from you. <laughs> Good. And it's, it's integrated into many of my keynotes. And Good. I usually give you credit, but it depends on the office. Uh, whatever. Just take it. Just ride with it, Brad. You talked about the office was really kind of... Um, the, the old way we designed an office was kind of like a leftover from kindergarten. You talk about that. And, and, then you, and then you talk about the fact that people would say, hey, I'm going to go to work. And what that meant was I'm going to go to the office because everything I needed was there. Yeah. Talk, of, talk about the change in the purpose of the office from that mindset. Well, let, let me just, and I'm going to make it broader than just the office. I'm going to talk about Bring just work it. in general. Okay. And yeah. I'm going to get really personal. I'm sorry. And this is, this is a little dark, but I apologize for that too. 
Um, look, 40 years ago, I graduated with a degree that was paid off the day I walked out of school. And I thought I would have one career in one profession. Right. And I thought that would probably last about 30 years. I couldn't really work that much on the weekends because we didn't have internet or cell phones and all of that. Sure. Stuff. We had computers. You could do a little bit, but not that much. Um, so I, I, was, I was accessible, but to a limit. And I thought that I would be better off. I had the promise, not even thought, I had the promise of being better off than my parents. This generation is graduating now with a degree that would take them 20 years to pay off. They won't even pay off that degree before they have to go back and get upskilled and retrained, something we didn't necessarily wow. assume we had to do. They aren't going to be working for 30 years because we're already working 40 or 50 years. Unless universal income comes in, they are going to be working 40 or 50 years. They are expected and are accessible 24-7 a day. And in, and in many parts, like in Europe, you're starting to see people put limitations on this. And they have the prospect of being worse off than their parents. You used to have to go to an office to get work done. You don't have to anymore. And so right. not only has work has fundamentally shifted from a societal standpoint, from an educational standpoint, from a duration and an economic standpoint, it has fundamentally shifted. And so is the real issue here that people don't want to go back to their offices because they suck? Or is it, I don't want to waste all that time commuting. And if I'm going to be working for 50 years, that's kind of unobtainable. Like, uh, wh where do I get a break? When do I get some relief? And so I think this pushback that we're seeing right now is that work has become fundamentally unsustainable. It's not that this generation is lazy. It's not that they don't want to work. It's that the prospect that has been laid in front of them is not the same one that was laid in front of us, and it's daunting. Wow. So it's overwhelming. The concept of working eight or 10 hours a day in an office for 50 years is overwhelming, is your point. And, and so therefore, the, the way that you design a workplace is, is different. Am I hearing that right? Yeah. Yeah. And Brad, let's just, let's just factor this in too. Sure. You know, I grew up in a time, I entered the workforce in a time, most of most of, of you know, my generation, where there was some, I don't want to say loyalty, but there was some uh, kind of contract between employer and employees. My father worked for the same place for 30 some years. You know, it was very, very common. And so we thought we're going to we're going to have a few employers, maybe, you know, we might shift a few times. This generation watched their parents get laid off, you know. Often later on in their careers, they've watched big swaths of people never be able to get a job when they graduated because of some of the economic situations. And, and that's not necessarily unique to them, but sure. I think that they don't necessarily have a, a, the comfort blanket that some other previous generations had. And so I think they're taking a long, hard look on what am I willing to do and how do I create mm -hmm. some boundaries if boundaries aren't going to be there? And again, in Europe, there are lots of boundaries that are being put out there to protect workers. That is not happening in the United States and is unlikely to happen in the U.S. Yeah, so that's really interesting. And the, and the, impact, the impact is this notion of if, if I want the best workers to work together, I have to create a place that is endearing to them. I mean, the term you and I use often is creating a, a workplace worth returning to. Yeah, it's a commute worthy. Yeah, commute worthy. Exactly. It earns the drive mm -hmm. or it earns the flight or whatever that, that is to to actually get there. So so a lot of I, I want to talk about this idea for a moment. How do we create this place that is worth driving to or worth the effort of getting to? And I'm going to start with this idea of a strategy around it, because I think it's a it's a business strategy. It's not a a construction project. It's actually a business strategy. And it's interesting to me that so many organizations don't have a strategy around this. I mean, are you still saying that or? Yes, we are still saying that. Um, okay. and, and, and look, so so I'll say a few things. Um, 
Hybrid is more of an operational model than a workplace model. I can design an amazing space. If nobody is there, it doesn't matter. If you're not putting in place access to leaders and, and the services and the amenities and, and the things that people want, it doesn't matter. Okay. And so we actually have a list of the, here are the 12 things you need to do to have a successful hybrid policy. Only five of them have to do with physical space. The other 12 are things like retrain managers to be able to manage by performance and not presence. Brilliant. Uh, right. You know, you think about how you're onboarding individuals to, to make them, you know, to make it stick. And I think a lot of our clients right now are trying to think about, um, well, I'm going to say it, we're being set up for failure. They're coming to us and saying, I need you to design a space that is so amazing that everybody will want to show up. And again, I can design an amazing space, but if you don't have the policies and procedures in place, it doesn't matter. And one of the things that clients are asking us is, what is that amenity that's going to make everybody come in? I'm going to tell you what it isn't. Donuts. Coffee, maybe. You could argue it might be coffee, but, but donuts and free, like, and those are all nice things, but that's sure. not going to do it. And so we actually believe, and I'm going to amend this because initially we said the number one amenity is people. Yeah. If I'm going to an office and it's invigorating and lively and there are people there and that's why I'm going and I see them and I can engage, that's great. If I go and I'm the only one there, I'm not staying. Okay. But I'm going to amend it to the number one amenity is access to leadership. If we're telling people that you need to come in for mentoring, for professional development, this generation wants to make an impact. They want to have access to those people. And so if I'm telling you, you need to come in, but then I'm not there, what is that saying? And so I, we're telling our clients, you need to rethink how you're designing spaces because what are people coming in for? Are they coming in to gather? Are they coming in to connect with their employees? Are they coming in to do, you know, some some level of heads down concentrative work? You know, whatever that is, we have to figure that out and design for that. I'm not coming in to sit in a little teeny box. I'll tell you that. Yeah, yeah. Okay? Um, but then we also need to make sure that we have all of those other things in place that are making it a, a great space to be. You have to give me something at the office that I cannot get at home, whether that's movement, access to individuals, amenity services, training, amazing technology, um, you know, whatever that, that is, the energy, the buzz, uh, the, the connection to the culture, the, the sense that I belong to something more important than myself. Right. Those are all really positive things, and we need to connect with that. So, so imagine... I'm not looking for a name of a customer. I just know the good work that you do. Yeah. I'm, I want you to lock one or two of those in your head, a customers that have gone on this journey with you. Paint a word picture of what, what it looks like when you have a good strategy. What does that yeah. look like? Yeah. So it, it all starts with that strategy is clearly and consistently communicated. Okay. That you don't have one group doing one thing, another group doing something totally different, and then you start mm -hmm. getting like, well, why can they do this and we can't do that, et cetera. Um, it's also about having things that are fit for purpose. Yeah, talk about that. Talk about that some more because I'm not sure people get that. Yeah, so look, a lot of our clients are saying, well, the only reason that anybody's going back to the office is to gather. Okay, that's, that's one of the reasons. It's not sure. the only reason. And so right. a lot of our clients are saying, okay, get rid of some of these desks and let's just plop in gathering spaces right in the middle of that so that they can connect. But if you're not, if, if your managers don't encourage you to use those spaces, if being seen in those spaces is signaling to someone that you're not really working, you're messing around, if they're not in the right location, or if that's not what you do, like if you're doing individual work and you're doing, you know, paperwork or whatever, and I'm not gathering or connecting or sharing, you know, all of that, having those kinds of spaces does not my purpose, right? And so we need to really understand what are your people doing? What are their work styles? What are they doing? Where best can they do that? And what are the best types of spaces that will support them and their abilities to do that? What you need for salespeople is different than accountants. What you need for lawyers is different than you need for tech uh, entrepreneurs. And, and we need to understand that. So, so, so you often 
describe this in terms of neighborhoods or activity-based work. It's this notion that I, I don't sit at my desk all day long. I actually use different parts of where I work for different tasks. Yeah. Talk, can you can you explain that a little bit? Talk about that. So I'm going to use an analogy. Yeah. Uh, when everybody is assigned a, a work spot, every desk has to be exactly the same. And people's mobility level drops because the second you put your name on something, then it's almost like you tethered me to that spot. Mm. And we're not addressing diversity and equity because, again, we're assuming one size fits all. And we know that's not the case. Wow. And then, um, you know, we we kind of force people into a, a set behavior. If we can create options and choices and variety, then people can migrate to the types of spaces that they need. So I want you to think about that assigned spaces is the equivalent of a one-room efficiency apartment. Okay, that workstation initially was designed so I could sit in one place and reach everything and everything was right there and I never have to move. Isn't that incredible? No, that's one step away from Wally. Right. That's not what we should be trying to do. We want people to be active and engaged and moving. And so we're taking people out of that one room efficiency apartment and I'm moving you into a single family home where uh, if you're going to cook, you cook in the kitchen. If you're sleeping, you're sleeping in the bedroom. If you're uh, working, there might be a den or a space to do that. You're not sitting there at the end of your bed. That's also your desk. That's also your kitchen table, like a one room efficiency apartment. Right. And so. We're not taking things away from people. We're actually giving you more options and choices and treating you like an adult so that you can make the choice about what do I have to get done today and what's the right place for me to do that. Our, our way of explaining this, what you're describing, our language is, uh, we use this phrase called human impact. And it's this notion that tech in and of itself is not good enough. It's it has to do, it has to level up the consumer of it, the user of it. And what you're doing is you're talking about designing a space that's not just rows and rows of cubicles. You're designing a space because that's how the people in that space, um, A, want to consume it, but B, um, deliver better. They, they work better. They create a sense of community better. All right, I'm going to flip the tables on you, Brad. I'm going to ask you a Hit question. Okay. All and, and, and I'm going to give you a theory, kind of, and what we're seeing, and I just want you to, to, to see if, if you're seeing this. Look, we have this whole thing that we call high-tech equals high-touch. Okay. Sure. The more high-tech we go, the more high-touch people want their spaces because they need balance. So our philosophy is, if you think about sci-fi movies, most sci-fi movies the futuristic workplace is very cold and sterile and metallic and, you know, dark and monochromatic and lots of screens and like, you know, whatever. But we're humans and, and we need to feel like we connect. And so the more technology is impacting and influencing us, which is can be a great thing, the more authentic and real and hands-on we want things. The more biophilic elements are coming in, the more stylization is coming in, the more hospitality elements are coming into the workplaces because we are human. And when you think about what separates us from the machines, the machines are doing those analytical robotic things. We're doing those uh, emotional intelligence, the, the human things, the, the judgment elements. And so we believe that those sci-fi movies are getting it totally wrong. And there's a massive movement, even for places that are high touch, high tech, to really start to create spaces that are more human centric and aren't sterile. Yeah, for sure. So so our, our our language around this is the days of adopting tech is gone. It's not about adopting tech, it's about adaptive tech. Because adopting tech says that I'm moving you towards the technology. But adaptive tech says that I'm moving the tech towards you and it's beginning to understand how you want to use it, how you how you use it to better your work or how you use it to create a better experience. It's really adapting to you. And so for me, I agree with you the sci-fi notion of this uh you know super sterile environment it, it doesn't work because people ultimately want, especially younger workers, want that tech to adapt to them. 
And they don't even want to think about how to use it. They want it to somehow yeah. magically do what they want it to do. Right? Well, and, and look, we call it, we talk about digital fitness, right? You know? Yeah. Perfect example. Right. And I, and I say all the time, you know, I'm sorry to say this, but you know, look, a 16 year old can drive a Porsche. I'm not giving a 16 year old a Porsche okay? <laughs> right. for, for many reasons. Okay. Right. But I think there's been a, um, a, a tradition maybe in, in the IT industry to give people the coolest, most, you know, crazy thing. And literally, I can't tell you how many conference rooms I've walked into where there's a $50,000 piece of technology art on the wall that nobody knows how to use because it didn't match the digital, digital fitness of the users. And I think that's right. I think one of the conundrums right now, Brad, that, that people are, are facing, and, and, and I would love your insights on this one too. Um, on one hand, everybody wants things intuitive. I want to be able to walk into the room, not have to take 10 minutes to get it set up and just have it work like i just want it to work okay but then to to make that and they want a consistent experience so a lot of in-house it guys are saying every conference room needs to have the same package so that it doesn't vary so that it's user friendly and it's intuitive but then to me okay i i get that part of it but then that also means that you're dumbing down everything to the lowest level of digital fitness and you're not getting anybody like you're putting things in a room that may not need it, and then you have a room that really could use something more sophisticated, and they're not getting it. So it's kind of like that average, which is just like, Ugh. yeah. the The uniformity argument is actually much more valued by the IT staff that has to support thousands of these across their enterprise. I think uniformity translates into comfort for the user, but it's not a mandate ability to use is the mandate. The The ability to enable the technology to level me up is the mandate, not not uniformity. So, so I want to go back to something you said, because I, I don't want to blow past this. So you were talking about, it's still in this context of how you design something for the, the fit for purpose kind of mindset. And uh, you and I have had you talked about biophilics. You talked about a number of different attributes. I want to I want to camp for a moment on neurodiversity because this is a topic that's passionate for you. It's passionate for me, and and it's this notion of of uh, delivering a, a space or an experience that is uh, adaptive to that particular person. Talk about neurodiversity, how it impacts the way you design. Yeah, so so here's what, and we've actually kind of broadened this topic a, a little bit more. So so today, in a sense, we often, we, we can talk about neurodiversity, but it's not just people that are neurodiverse, meaning people that maybe be ADHD, uh, on the spectrum for autism, et cetera. Every single person, whether you're neurodiverse or neurotypical, is being literally assaulted by sensory stimulation. And, and you don't have to be on the extreme ends to be impacted by sound or visual distractions or temperature, any of those things. And so when we design for the extreme, we tend to benefit the mean, but we need to acknowledge that cognitive and social well or sensory well-being are really critical elements. And we need to design spaces where people can function. If, if I ask designers, what are the top three things that you get on post-occupancy evaluations that are the three biggest issues? It's acoustics, lighting, and temperature. All three are sensory elements, okay? And so we've done a tremendous amount of research into really understanding how space is impacting you and or you can create an ecosystem. There's your favorite word again, but I just had to get that in again. You can create an ecosystem within offices that give people options and choices so that if you are hypo-sensitive and you need more stimulation, but I'm hyper-sensitive and I'm being overwhelmed with visual or acoustical stimulation, we both can find spaces that fit our needs for that task at hand. And so again, it goes back to options, choices, and variety and it really helps everybody function at a higher level in those shared spaces. So I want to, I want to, uh, I want to take this a little bit more personal. So as I've gotten to know you, there's some really 
lots of things to love about you, but you, you, you are super passionate about this idea of designing for people, not designing for a standard or a spec or, um, how did that get started? What started that for you? Well, I, I mean, I think, first of all, as a designer, I truly believe that every space that we make in design has an impact on the individuals. And, and over the years, I've seen how it's impacted people. And I really got into workplace strategy. I'll tell you something I don't tell most people. Uh, I really got into that several years ago, probably 20 years ago. Because clients wouldn't make decisions. And it's like, this is, you know, here's what we were thinking. This is what you should do. And if we couldn't justify why we were making the recommendation, it was just our opinion versus theirs, right? And, and I will argue today, so, and again, equal opportunity offender, in, in a corporate setting, you are not designing me to design something that you personally like. You have a house, go do whatever you want that you like at your house. You are, I am being hired to create a space that works for your population, for the mission of your organization, for your brand, for your culture, for your customers, okay? And so I need to understand what is it that you're trying to achieve? Are you trying to achieve spaces that people will never want to leave? Or do you, are you trying to achieve spaces that people will come in, be wowed, and leave within 10 minutes, right? Because they got to go on to the next thing. And, and every decision that we make, I can argue why we made that decision and how it's impacting the the behavior that we want. But if I say that every decision I make can have a positive impact on the individuals, I also have to acknowledge that if I don't design it well, it can right. have a negative. That's impact. absolutely right. And nobody went to design school so we could stick it to a bunch of people, right? We all went to design school because we are passionate about that. And so really understanding the full power and the science of design because there is one, and we don't talk about that a lot, is really critical in helping our clients make better decisions faster and create spaces where more and more people are welcome, feel included, can be highly functional, and it's successful for both the individual and for the, for the business. So, Kay, I, I believe that this is true, by the way. I... I, I have these same conversations with my team and, and we're not talking necessarily about spaces we might be talking about a ui or we might be talking about a soundscape or we might be talking about an experience ultimately everything comes down to an experience because the experience is the emotional connective tissue between in our case the tech and the person and and what you're talking about in design transfers into any kind of design. And if you're not doing it, I think you're missing the boat. I, that's why I love these conversations with you. And Brad, we're tied at the hip, okay? Because I can design the most amazing place on the planet, but if somebody goes into it and the tech doesn't work, they're not talking about how beautiful that room is. They're talking about why isn't the tech working? That's right. right? And, and if I design a space that I, and I don't bring you in early enough to make sure that it's highly functional, we're going to miss. And, right. you know, I, I think the message that we are telling everybody in our firm and, and have been is if you are designing workspaces, gathering spaces, specifically gathering spaces and meeting spaces and offices the same way that you did three, four, five years ago, you're missing the boat because we have got to rethink the way that we design things. And, I'll, and I'll, just the perfect example I think we have done a very poor job of designing gathering spaces. And if people are coming back to meet, those meeting spaces better be good and they better be fit for purpose. It, is, it should not be about shoving the largest rectangular table with the maximum number of chairs I can in a room with a little teeny monitor at the end of one wall, glass on one side, windows on the other, no place to hang any place, no, no, nowhere to stand or move or fidget, and calling that a good experience. And then, by the way, adding the tech at the end and the room isn't proportionally set up so that anybody can see it. We have, we have, we've got to stop and say, what are you doing in that room? And let us help you design differently because the, the old adages of, okay, conference rooms, 20 or 25 square feet per person, put it in the program, call it a day. That doesn't cut it anymore. Yeah. It doesn't. And we have to change that. So, um, 
I'm going to take us to a conversation that you and I had at lunch a few months ago. You know okay. which conversation? You no. look on your faces, you might remember it. No, I'm scared because we've had so many like honest conversations. It's like, which, which one are you going to bring up now? But okay, I'm ready. You and I were having lunch and you leaned, this, this goes to the, to the topic of, you know, good strategies, help people make good decisions. And this goes to, you know, why are you doing what you're doing? You and I are having lunch and you lean over the table and you look at me and you go, I don't get you guys. And and what you meant by that was, I don't get you, you, you tech geeks. I don't get you guys. Oh, you speak a different language. Nobody knows what you guys are talking about 90% of the time. What is it? What is it you don't get? And you looked at me and you said, <laughs> you keep asking your customer what they want. Like they know what they want. <laughs> they don't know what they want. You have to help them figure out what they want. Stop doing that. I'm going to tell you, Kate, I repeat that story as often as I can. But this is what you're talking about. It's how you lead uh, a customer to an outcome, right? Yeah. And, and look, I, I think this is something that has fundamentally changed. Five years ago, maybe you could ask a customer what they wanted, but sure. the, the whole world has been flipped upside down. We don't, we don't, you know, look, in a traditional design scenario, you start with visioning and then, you know, programming, et cetera. All right. And, and I, you know, you know, they're hiring us because we do this a hundred times a day. We know what it is. But the very first question we ask them is, hey, what do you want? Like, what should I do for you? And I'd be like, I'm hiring you. Tell me what I should even be considering and what I should be thinking about, right? Then I'll tell you what's relevant to me. So we've, we've totally changed the way we engage our customers and we call it framing the possible. And it's helping them understand where they even are and then where they could potentially get to, then we can map a course. If you're asking somebody who's never walked outside where they wanna go, they don't know. And they don't even know where they are anymore because the entire world has been flipped upside down. So we have to approach our, our customers differently. And we have to think about, um, here's what is happening. Here's what we're seeing. Here's the impact that that's happening. Here's how we think that influences or is going to impact you. Here are the things that you need to be thinking about. I mean, five or six years ago, there weren't a lot of companies that were thinking about ESGs, diversity, equity, and inclusion, neurodiversity, uh, doing gathering spaces differently, hybrid working, ecosystems. These are all things that existed to some degree, and we were doing it with some of our clients, but not to the level that we're doing it now. And now let's throw in artificial intelligence and chat GPT and, and all of that as well. So I think our job is to help our clients understand the dynamics at play and help them prepare for what's happening. Yeah, that's super good. Okay, so I have one more provocative, we have time for one more provocative question here. And that is, there's this point of tension, we talked about it, but we haven't actually like oh. said it, right? Okay. So there's this tension between uh, workers who are trying to define the work style and the work environment that they want, uh, which in often includes the office, not always, but often includes the office. Mm -hmm. And then there's executive teams or management who need, want, desire people back into the office for a variety of reasons. But those two views are polarizing to some degree. And sometimes you get a mandate. If you don't get to the office by this day for this amount of time every week, you need to go look for another job someplace else. Or it's the opposite, which is kind of passive aggressive. Can I bribe you? Maybe this kind of donut is a better version of, of what will get yeah. you into the office, right? right? Where do you think this lands? Where is it today? And where do you think this lands? Well, let's, okay. So I think we're in this situation because people aren't being honest for, for a variety of reasons. <laughs> Number one, I don't think, um, and, and people, you can see survey results and people will say the craziest things and it's like, okay, sure. really? Wow. Um, Number one, and I don't think, and I don't think that people are lying intentionally. I don't think they really understand all of the dynamics at play. But there's this, there's this intuition or force. What we're hearing in the roundtables that we are having from business leaders is that they are very concerned about continuity, about um, about people. You know, churn is happening. They're concerned about the high rate of depression and burnout that is happening. They're concerned about the quality 
of what is being produced. People are sitting stagnantly for hours and hours. They feel like they're working hard. They're draining themselves physically, just having the life sucked out of them. But sitting on Zoom calls for eight hours a day, is that really what a company values? And, and most people are multitasking. The number of mistakes has gone like through the roof. You know, so, I mean, it, there's a lot of really good reasons, but you know, a lot of people in corporate America don't want to say, hey, we're, our quality has really dropped. We need to get you guys back into the office. And by the way, I want to retire someday, so you need to get here so I can actually like, you know, transfer this knowledge right. and I'm right. Okay. And, but on the same hand, workers, I think, um, are very empowered and they haven't had a lot of options and choices. And again, let's go back to that first conversation that we had about what is facing them today and the fact that it's daunting. And I think a lot of people want a little bit more balance and a little bit more control because we have to figure out a way that we can work in a more sustainable way. And there needs to be a reason and a logic. Again, you know, telling people they have to be in the office just because you want them to be and telling you know, somebody saying, I never want to come back without thinking about what your job requirements are or what that does for the company or your, your coworkers is also a not thing. So we, we have to be honest and we also need to be fair to each other and we need to think um, about the entire system, workers and the company, and how do we come to a solution that will benefit most. I, I do believe that some degree of hybrid work is here. I think people are gonna very quickly realize that hybrid work is the hardest model to pull off and in many cases is going to be the worst of both. I think it's gonna be rough and rocky until people realize that they need to do something differently and we need to fundamentally work differently. Sitting stagnantly on Zoom calls for eight hours a day, whether you're in the office or at home, is not ideal for anybody. Yeah, yeah, so good. So when you look in your crystal ball and you're looking down the road, you know, whatever it is, your crystal ball is probably further out than my crystal ball. Um, what do you think about, what are the one or two things that you pay attention to that have the potential of really advancing this field of workplace design? I think we need to think differently in, in many regards. Um, I think we need to totally rethink gathering spaces and not only where they are, like how we design them, but where they are. You know, you could look at any high-rise building in New York City and there's probably, you know, 50 floors. There's probably at least 30 tricked out conference rooms that are used an hour a day or a day a week at most. That's a total waste, right? We need to think about how do we leverage the sharing economy and create maybe less space, but it's better space and it's and maybe it's a managed conference center or whatever. So, so we get rid of some of those challenges that you and I were just talking about. And maybe not everybody has to own it. We're, we've always been very siloed. You know, I have to have all my own things. You have to have your own thing. We all like are in the same space. I have no idea who works above me or below me. We don't share anything. You know, it's kind of a waste in, in, in a regard. And so I think in a lot of cases, we're thinking about uh, creating more communal spaces and sharing opportunities. We have got to get serious about sustainability um, it is a huge issue. We have got to get serious about repurposing an aging infrastructure building. Uh, I saw a statistic the other day that in the United States, about 70% of, of buildings are really set for what is coming. But globally, about 90% of global portfolio is not where it needs to be. And nobody wants to invest in buildings right now. So if we're not investing in buildings, but those buildings aren't up to standards, We've got a real serious issue because there is a massive flight to quality right now and people want better spaces. So we, we have to think about how do we do this? And we need to think about how do we create, you know, whether it's the 15 minute city or the, you know, walking cities or, you know, how do, how do we do that? So I think there's a lot of interesting things that we have an opportunity to rethink. And, you know, I think we need to rethink how people are working. If I'm gonna be working for 50 years, I can't wait 50 years for that retirement. I mean, there are things in my life, whether it's travel or having children or going back and getting educated, whether it's a sabbatical system, whether it's periodic breaks, whether it's something, 
we need to make it so that people can actually sustain and it's more palatable. And then, you know, I think if you think about uh, athletes, athletes train in spurts and then you take a break and then you train in spurts. We need to work more like athletes. And I think this notion that, uh, you know, eight hour day, I think is going to go. I think I find it fascinating that I tend to work a lot more than an eight hour day, but there's, there's lots of t- times where it's like, all right, I'm here. It is three o'clock in the afternoon. I have calls until six thirty or seven. I can either sit here and then not get, then sit in traffic and not get home until eight thirty or nine, or I could leave now, miss the traffic, take my calls from home, which I'm trying to avoid bothering people in the office anyway. And then I'm home in time for dinner because I've already done that, you know, so I think we need to think about things a little bit more fluidly as well. Okay. What, what if, uh, if there's somebody listening, that's an aspiring designer, maybe they're, maybe they're a tech designer and they might look like me or they're a space designer yeah. and they might look like you. What, what would you say to them? One thing that you would say to them that would level up their game as a designer. Look, I think actually it's funny. A lot of the problems that we're facing right now have actually been solved someplace else. Okay, so the auto industry is kicking our butt right now. You, you can get in a car that is all tricked out. It's totally intuitive to what you need, what you want, adjust to you personally. And in offices, we're still crawling around trying to find an outlet. Um, you know, or, or this whole thing about permission signaling, right? You know, well, how, how do I know if anybody wants to interrupt me? We figured that out in restaurants and bars. Like, we know how to do that. Like, if I'm at a high top table in the middle, people are going to, you know, I'm telling people, come talk to me. If I'm in a booth in the back, I'm saying, stay away from me. I'm having a private conversation. So we can do this stuff. We've figured it out other places. We just need to be a little bit bolder and braver. And I think in North America, we need to rethink the model because I believe we've fallen behind in North America because we have some of the longest lease terms and we build out more extensively than we do in other parts of the world. And so the mantra has always been, we're going to do this once every 10 years. We're going to spend a lot of money. Don't screw it up. And so people tend to be more conservative where in other parts of the world where they're flipping their real estate every three or four years, they try things because we're going to be gone in three years anyway, or we're going to get rid of this, et cetera. And so I think we need to embrace uh, the fact that change is going to be constant. We need to pilot. We need to be a little bit bolder. And we need to think a little bit differently about how we deliver spaces, how we design spaces, how we approach our clients, what it is that we're offering and what it is. And I'm going to go back to what I said, Brad, you and I are no longer in the business of designing environments. We are designing experiences. Okay, Sergeant, you're always amazing. I love it every time we get together. It's a pleasure to hang out with you. We just spent an hour talking about the things that we love. And man, I can't say thank you enough. Thank you for joining us today. No problem. Happy to. Next time we'll solve word peace, okay? <laughs> there you go. <laughs> <laughs>